You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. This is our third week in our study of the book of Exodus. Last week we took a a deeper look at chapter 1 because in week 1 we went through the entire chapter, all of chapter 1. And then last week I wanted us to not move too quickly into chapter 2 because I feel like there is so much covered in chapter 1. We've talked about the fact that in chapter 1, like 400 years gets covered basically, right? You've got the children of Israel coming down into Egypt. They start growing and thriving there and Um, by the end of the chapter, almost 400 years has passed because God is now ready to start to deliver them from Egypt. And so last week we really dialed in on the fact that God's foreknowledge and his present knowledge uh, give us comfort and hope in the midst of our current challenges to trust that he's working good for us. And then we said so that he can also work good through us, right? The idea being that God knew what was going to happen when the children of Israel were in Egypt. We, we learned that in Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 15, God says, you're going to go to Egypt. It's going to be super hard, super challenging. You're going to end up in slavery down there. But it's going to be used for good purposes, and I'm going to bring you out of that. So this foreknowledge, he knows where he's going to take us. He knows what he's going to take us through And then we see at the end of chapter 2 where it talks about God knew their predicament. God knew their suffering. And so it gives us assurance that God knows and knows. He knows where he's taking us, and he knows what we're currently dealing with right now. Um, And as we've been seeing in in our study of Exodus, God works good in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our challenges. God is working good. And then what we saw last week is that he's working good in us so that he can then work good through us, right? And so the idea being that uh, part of what he was doing while they were in Egypt was giving them a history to look back to. We referenced several passages last week where God refers them back to their time in Egypt and says, basically, trust me now because I was faithful to you while you were in Egypt. Remember we said that this is a family, a large family that comes down to Egypt and then grows into a great nation, but they don't have a whole lot of history to refer back to. I mean, it's basically the amount of adults in our church that traveled down to Egypt and become a great nation within 400 years, but they don't have a big family or a big national history to refer back to. So God's giving them this history to refer back to, a history of faithfulness. So Fast forward years later, they're wandering in the wilderness or they're in the promised land uh, or even when they're in captivity in Babylon, God says, trust me now because I was faithful to you back then, right? And then we also saw last week, not only is he building this family history, but he's also giving them an understanding of how to act because of how they were treated, right? He, he tells them that you know what it was like to be a slave. You know what it was like to be a foreigner in a land that was not your own. This is how we're going to treat people who are foreigners and strangers in our own land. So giving them a family history to refer back to, and then also helping them to see that their life circumstances can be used to serve others, right? For our kids, there's coming a day when um, your greatest challenge will be more than what do I do in an afternoon when my parents won't let me get on my tablet or my device, right? Like for some of you, that's your biggest challenge, your biggest predicament, 
Sometimes I watch Apollos and I, and I long to be in his shoes again where, um, you know, his greatest challenge is that he's being told to go take a nap, right? Like that's his big trial for the day is that he has to lay down and take a nap when he doesn't want to. Um, for our youth, you, you've probably started to get into uh, this phase of life now where you're experiencing challenges that are outside what your family is experiencing and they're unique to you. That starts to happen maybe when you get into late elementary or middle school or high school where you start to experience challenges that aren't related to mom and dad. They're related specifically to you. The book of Exodus is written so that you can refer back to God's faithfulness to his people. So that when you start to go through your own trials, your own difficulties, you can trust God now because he's been faithful to his people for all time, right? We can use our circumstances right now. We can use our circumstances. Some of us have have lost parents. Some of us have lost children. And we're going to encounter people who lose parents and lose children. And God can use our experiences to bring comfort and hope to them. God says, you know what it was like to be a stranger. You know what it was like to be a foreigner, Israel. Let's treat strangers and foreigners differently in light of our experience, all right? Um, We move into chapter two today. I wanna read to you for our text. Um, Chapter two, verses one through 10. This will be a familiar passage to us for our kids, especially. Um, This is a passage that's referenced a lot of times in uh, Sunday school classes or... um, Maybe, maybe in previous times when you uh, had uh, kids club, maybe, maybe you've heard this story before. It says in verse one, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Our summary sentence for today. In the midst of life's challenges, we must remember that God remains sovereign, which enables me to remain faithful to him while waiting patiently for him to work providentially for my good. In the midst of life's challenges, we must remember that God remains sovereign, which enables me to remain faithful to him while waiting patiently for him to work providentially for my good. For our kids, God rules and reigns for my good even when bad things are happening in my life. This has been a chaotic situation for the children of Israel, right? I mean, they, they, are, they are transported down to a place where, that is not their own. They're living as guests in Egypt at the, at the command, really, of God instructing them to go. God told Jacob in a vision and a dream that he was to take his family there. 
And since arriving and since the new Pharaoh took over, it's become chaotic where um, you'll remember the Pharaoh has sought to really stop Israel's growth through that oppressive slavery. He says, we'll beat them into submission. We don't want them to get so powerful that they overtake us. So let's enslave them. Let's, let's impose our will upon them. What happened though? The children of Israel continued to grow. Pharaoh sought to stop Israel's growth then by abortion at birth. He basically solicits the help of the midwives, those who would have been present when the, when the Israelite women were having kids. And he says, hey, kill the baby boys. Let the baby girls live, kill the baby boys. But the midwives refused to obey and the Israelites continued to grow. Then what we saw at the end of chapter one, Pharaoh sought to stop Israel's growth through a national purging effort. Basically, he tells all the Egyptians, if you see a Hebrew baby boy, you seize him and you throw him in the Nile River, right? If the midwives aren't going to help, then I'll appeal to all the Egyptian men and women. You help me out. Let's stop them. And he probably was very convincing in that, arguing that, hey, this is for your good. We're trying to protect you, the Egyptian, from the Israelites becoming a threat to us. We don't know how many participated in this. We don't know how many baby boys were killed during this time. We know that obviously God was saving a lot of them because they continued to grow. But more than likely, there were still some who were killed as a part of this as well. The point, though, is that nothing was working. Israel keeps growing. Pharaoh is continuing to try to work against this growth. Now, what's interesting is that uh, he feared that his downfall would happen at the hand of males, but he's currently crumbling because of the activity of females. I remember reading an article not too long ago. um, I think it was right after the movie Tangled came out, where Disney basically said they wanted to shift gears with their storytelling and basically start to pitch girls as the heroes of the story. Um, And so they wanted to shift away from the the princess in distress and wanted to create more of a heroine out of the female gender, which is, which is awesome to see. Um, now, in some ways, it maybe has started to, to dominate some of their storytelling. I mean, you watch Star Wars movies now, and, and it's, it's females that are kind of the leads for that. But here's the thing. The Bible was way ahead of that, well before Disney decided to shift gears with their princess storytelling, right? You read in the Bible, God is constantly using women as the heroes of his stories. And this is specifically a case where that just continues to happen. We've already seen the midwives were heroes, right? They refused to submit to, to Pharaoh's commands. But in chapter 2, we see women popping up everywhere as heroes of the story. Uh, Moses' mom, who refuses to listen to Pharaoh, puts her own life at risk by trying to hold him and save him and preserve him. Then you've got Moses' older sister, who becomes a hero of this story too, right? Like she's hiding in the bulrushes. She's hiding in the, in the background, waiting to see what happens. And then, man, she jumps right on the scene and offers help to Pharaoh's daughter and says, hey, I got somebody that can help take care of this baby for you. But even Pharaoh's daughter is used as a, as a uh, part of the story here, as a hero of the story, because she goes completely against her dad's wishes here. Who knows how God had worked on her heart to make her open to this? We don't know. We know that she comes down to bathe and she's immediately sympathetic towards this, this Hebrew baby. Why? Does she have a husband of her own and maybe she can't give birth to a child? Maybe she's lost a child? We don't know, but for whatever reason, she is sympathetic towards a baby that she's supposed to throw into the Nile, right? She wants this baby for her own. 
God's using women here to bring Pharaoh down. They're the foundation for Moses' delivery, right? Like Moses reigns later as the leader and deliverer of Israel because women were helping to take care of him, and God was using these women as heroes of the stories. It's really cool to see how God works and moves here. Chapter 1 has been all about God preserving his people, growing them into a nation. Chapter 2 is all about God raising up a deliverer to free his people to worship him. Now, there's two concepts that we're going to see today that are super important for us to understand how God works and functions and how that, according to our summary sentence, enables us to be faithful to him while waiting patiently for him. It's the idea of sovereignty and providence. Okay, we've talked about these two terms before. Sovereignty has to do with the idea that God has the right and the power to do whatever he wants. There's a great article out there. You can look it up and read it uh, by John Piper about the difference between sovereignty and providence. The idea being that sovereignty is, the, uh, is the, uh, the power and the right that God has to do whatever he wants to do. Providence is God choosing to provide for us out of that sovereignty. Okay, so let me say that again. Sovereignty is the idea that God rules and reigns. He has the power. He has the right to do whatever he wants to. Providence, which is a word that's not found in Scripture, but it's an idea, it's a concept. Providence is the idea of what we see in Romans 8, 28, that God chooses to work out of his sovereignty for our good, right? He chooses to provide for us. So we're going to see how those two things work hand in hand together to empower us to be obedient to him, particularly when we're in trials and difficulties that are lasting far longer than we would choose for them to last. All right, let's look at number one here. Express faith by trusting his sovereign rule. Express faith by trusting his sovereign rule. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of chaos, we can trust that God remains in control. His power is on display here in chapter 1 and here at the beginning of chapter 2. While Pharaoh and Egypt seem to have the upper hand, we have the benefit of seeing how defeated already they truly are. Now, think about this. If you were living at the time, you don't know about Moses. You don't know about where this story is headed all you know is that your, your parents and your grandparents told you, we were told to come down here by Yahweh. We were told to come down here by God. And all it has led to is our suffering. And we've, we've been told and promised that God is going to deliver us out of this at some point. All the while, you are waiting and anticipating, when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? Is there anything good going on here? Now, we have the advantage of knowing the whole story. We can look at this and see, man, When it looks like Pharaoh and Egypt are the dominant power, when it looks like they are the sovereign over the life of Israel, they're not, right? It looks that way. It looks that way on paper. I mean, you're looking at the scenario. You're looking at how everything's playing out. Man, Pharaoh and Egypt are running the show, but they're not. We have the ability to see behind the scenes to know that God is still letting the Israelites grow, They're still thriving. He's setting them up and preparing them to deliver them to be a great nation. I put in my notes, can we live our life in a way that the enemies we face and the power they possess pale in comparison to what we know of our God? Let me say that again. Can we live our life in a way 
that the enemies we face and the power they possess pale in comparison to what we know of our God. We need to understand that while we can't always see how God's working, right? We can't always see that in the midst of our trials, the enemies or the circumstances that seem to be ruling and reigning over our life pale in comparison to God's control. That's what this story helps us to see, that when it looks like Pharaoh and Egypt are winning, they're not. When it looks like something is winning in your life, it's not either, right? The enemy may look like he's winning in your life. It may look like those trials and those circumstances are going to cripple you, but God's still in control. God is still ruling and reigning. In the midst of chaos, number two, we can trust that God is carrying out his plans. He's carrying out his plans. Not only does God have power, he has purpose with that power. He is working to triumph over evil, and he's working to provide for his people. In general, God is working to overcome the evil in this story. Very specifically, he is working to provide for his people. Remember, Israel is in this predicament because God commanded them to go. Genesis 45, he tells Jacob, put your people, put your family down there. They're also under divine promise, Genesis 15. I'm going to deliver them. They're going to come out. They're awaiting that divine intervention right now. When will God deliver us? When will God deliver us? We can express faith in our own trials, in our own predicaments, in our own difficulties by remembering that he is sovereignly in control. He is ruling in our life. But number two, we can express faith by expecting his providential care. Again, the idea being that if he's sovereign, he has the power, he has the right to do whatever he wants to. His providence is that he chooses to use that sovereignty for our good purposes. He chooses to rule, he chooses to use his rule for us. One commentator said this, we must rest in the knowledge that underpinning everything that happens to us, there is a secret undeclared providence that is always at work, always providing, always purposeful, always on the side of the people of God. Rest in that truth for a minute. Rest in the knowledge that underpinning everything that happens to us, every job loss, every family transition, everything that happens in your life, underpinning all of it, there's always a secret, undeclared providence that's always at work, always providing, always purposeful, always on the side of the people of God. Romans 8, 28 gives us that promise. If God is for us, nothing can really be against us. He's always working good for his children. Romans, Paul begins to list off all these things that could look like enemies of us, that could look like they're against us, and he assures us that God is working and moving in the midst of those things for our good. If we have confidence in these purposes of God, it enables us to be faithful and obedient to him. Think about this, the ways that Israel continues to grow in spite of their trials. They're oppressed, they're in slavery, and yet they continue to grow and thrive. The same should be true of us. Maybe not physically by having more babies, but the more we experience trials, the more faith we should have. Our faith ought to grow as well. Now, we said either last week or two weeks ago that you could probably argue that the children of Israel are expressing faith by continuing to have children. 
because God promised to make a great nation out of them. He promised to give them children. So while everything is kind of working against their growth and population, right? We're going to work them so hard that they're just dog tired at the end of the day. Like the last thing on their mind is having children, right? And yet they continue to have children. They continue to work towards the promises of God. In our life, trials hit, challenges hit, difficulties hit. Our faith should increase. Our faith should grow. If we're trusting in this knowledge that there's providential working by God in everything for us. He's using his sovereignty to providentially provide for us. Number one, in the midst of chaos, we can trust God by obeying him through our trials. In the midst of chaos, we can trust God by obeying him through our trials. In the text, what we're seeing here is just an average man and a woman, nothing special here. We learn their names in Exodus chapter 6, verse 20. We don't even get their names here in chapter 2. But Moses' dad is Amram, his mom is Jochebed. And the two of them come together, they get married, and they just start having kids. Even in the midst of all the challenges of how they shouldn't have kids probably during this time, they start to have children. And they refuse to subject their baby to an evil death, and they hide him for as long as possible, which was about three months, right? She's trying to care for him. She's trying to keep him quiet. Uh, you know how hard for our parents, how difficult that can be to keep a child quiet during those, that age range. But once they start to hit three months and they start to move around a little bit more, it becomes even harder to, to keep them quiet, right? They start, they start rolling and potentially starting to crawl, and it's not too long before they're going to start trying to walk. And she begins to realize, me keeping him a secret, me keeping him quiet isn't going to be possible for much longer. And when it becomes too dangerous, they surrender him to God in an act of faith, right? So there's, there's a lot of faith being demonstrated here. One, they find themselves in a chaotic situation, and yet they just do what they know that they're supposed to do. God's given that mandate to, to be fruitful and multiply. So they get married, and they're having kids, and they're trying to be obedient to God. They end up with a baby boy. They're trying to hide him and protect him. Now, what's interesting, and I don't know how this plays out time-wise, but Moses is the younger of the three, right? So you've got uh, Miriam and you've got Aaron who are older than him. So maybe Aaron's born before this real harsh mandate comes that, that the babies have to be killed, right? Because there's no discussion about how Aaron is preserved, and yet we know he's three years older and, and he's alive and he's well. Um, but Amram and Jacobet are just doing what they know to do. They're being faithful. In the midst of this, Moses is born. They refuse to give in to the, the threat and the um, power of Egypt and the power of Pharaoh. They try to hide him. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we see their act is uh, an expression of their salvation. Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith where uh, Old Testament saints are highlighted for their activity, highlighted for their expressions of faith. We see in verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Goes on to show how Moses expresses faith as well by growing up and refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But it's Amram and Jacobed's faith that are highlighted here in Hebrews 11 because they, they had a child and they refused to give in to Pharaoh's command. In the midst of chaos, we trust God by obeying him through our trials too. 
right? So whatever trials you may be experiencing, we have a responsibility to do what we know we're supposed to do, even though that may be difficult at times. We obey, we submit, we do what we're supposed to do. And then we deviate from that when our obedience uh, to anything on this planet would, would contradict with obedience to God, right? So that's what Amram and Jacobet are doing. They're being obedient. They're, they're probably good citizens. They're, they're faithfully working hard. And then they have a baby and they're told to kill it by the government. And they say, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're going to deviate. We're going to be obedient. And God highlights their faith in the book of Hebrews. Number two, in the midst of chaos, we can trust that God is working for our specific good. In the midst of chaos, we can trust that God is working for our specific good. So Amram and Jacobed are a great example of what it looks like to us to live in the midst of chaos and to trust God with obedience and to trust God and expect God for his specific good. Look what happens here. Jacobed puts Moses in the river her way, right? Technically, you could argue in kind of a, a humorous manner that she obeys Pharaoh, right? She throws her child into the water. She just preserves him in doing that, right? She builds a, a boat for him. She builds this basket that's meant to float and protect him in the midst of the Nile. So she, she could hide him no longer. She, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, and, and she covers it in materials that'll keep it waterproof, and she puts the child in it and placed it amongst the reeds by the riverbank. It's interesting that the, the word for basket here is the same word used for ark in Genesis, and it's the only time it's used in the Bible. These on, it's the only two places. It's used for Noah and his salvation. It's used for Moses and his salvation. Both of them are placed in an ark. Both of them are spared from watery judgment by God's provision. Now, think about God's sovereign protection here of Moses, right? Jacobed, given a gift by God, given a baby boy. She gives him back to God and trusts his care with God. And then God goes to work here and starts protecting him, right? He's in, he's in the water, which would be a nightmare for most moms to, to put their child in a, in a floating device that they've created with, with no parental supervision because she leaves the scene and she leaves her young daughter to kind of watch over him. But God starts to work and move and protect Moses. There's no, there's no um, breach of water to this boat. Moses doesn't drown here. There's no uh, threat by crocodiles to come and eat him, even though that would have potentially been a threat had he stayed there long enough. God sovereignly provides for Moses. Think about how he works and moves and allows the right person to find him on a day where she's willing to have pity on him. Again, I don't know what the circumstances were. If you were to make a movie of this, you might take some artistic um, uh, liberty here. But if I was, if I was making this movie, like, like I, would, I would show maybe her having some type of miscarriage and being like heartbroken over the loss of a child only to have God intervene and give her a child miraculously through the Nile River, right? Like for whatever reason, she shows pity on this boy, which, which really should have had no value to her right? She's Egyptian. She's living in the royal house. She's a princess. She can have anything and everything she wants. And a Hebrew baby boy shows up, and for whatever reason, she wants him. And she wants to care for him and take care of him. And I, and I can't, I can't um, to me, it just makes sense that God was working and moving and doing something in her life to open her heart to that day, to that moment, 
for that experience to, to resonate with her in such a way where she was willing to potentially even put her life on the line, right? Because dad has said to kill all the Hebrew baby boys, and here she is going to protect one of them. We don't know all the circumstances at play here, but God was certainly working and moving, using his sovereign power to direct this circumstance. And the baby begins to cry, and God uses these tears as the first weapon against Pharaoh's Egypt, right? These tears give her a sympathetic heart to want to save him. Eventually, God's going to use uh, bloody water and frogs and lice and all this other type of stuff to, to break Pharaoh in Egypt. But it starts with a baby crying and this woman looking out at him sympathetically and saying, I want him. I want to spare him. God begins to work and move and go above and beyond what, what Jacobed probably could have ever asked or thought, right? Who knows what type of prayer of dedication she prayed over this boat as she christens uh, Moses to go forth into the Nile River. Who knows what she was anticipating and hoping? I think she was expecting God's good. I think she was expecting it because Hebrew says this was an act of faith by her. But it probably went well beyond what she could ever ask or think as Ephesians talks about, Right? For, for her baby to be rescued by, by an Egyptian princess and then given to her, right? Like this is the ultimate work from home job, right? She said, I'm gonna pay you to take care of your kid, not somebody else's kid, right? We all know people who nanny and take care of other, other people's kids and they can't wait to probably get rid of them at the end of the day. But the Pharaoh's princess, the, the Pharaoh's daughter says, I'm gonna pay you to take care of your kid, right? I would love for somebody to pay my wife to take care of our kids, right? That would be awesome. That would be a, that'd be a great income for our family. This is what Jacobed gets. It's beyond anything she could have asked or thought that God does here. Moses, drawn out of the water. That's why he's named Moses. God is going to raise him up as a deliverer of Israel right under Pharaoh's nose. The one who's going to draw Israel out of Egypt. And what's really neat, too, because you're going to see this play out in the rest of his life, we don't know how long he ends up being under the care of his mom, of his biological mom. She eventually surrenders him over. But you got to think that some of the most influential years, whether he ends up staying with her until he's three to five years old, some commentators even think he may have stayed with her until he was 12 years old. His most influential years are shaped by his understanding of being an Israelite. Because when he gets to Egypt, like you watch movies like the Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments, uh, he, he doesn't realize he's a, a, he's a Hebrew till later on in life, right? Um, what seems to be the case here is that he knows. And he rejects the idea of being an Egyptian. He rejects the idea of, of being wrapped up in all that comes with being an Egyptian. He knows his people. He wants to care for his people. We're going to see as we work through chapter 2, he wants to deliver his people. And that comes from the intentionality that Jacobed would have had with him, teaching him and training him about God's goodness, training him with the promises of God. He's looking for that providential care too. When things look like they might be falling apart around us, remember God's mysterious providence is always at work. Let me say that again. When things look like they might be falling apart around us, remember God's mysterious providence is always at work. I mean, I picture her putting Moses in the Nile River, tells Miriam, stay, because I can't. Like, they're going to hear me crying because I've lost my son. And so she probably goes back to the house. She's probably mourning over the loss of her son, only to have Miriam come busting in saying, you're not going to believe what's happened. 
the Pharaoh's daughter found him, and she wants to pay you to take care of him. Unbelievable to see how God's working and moving behind the scenes here. How he's taking care of his people, how he's taking care of this woman and her child. It's the same type of care that God gives to us. Even when we can't see it at first, God's working and moving behind the scenes. That's what that commentator means when he says, rest in the knowledge that underpinning everything that happens to us, that secret undeclared providence is always at work. God shows his sovereign control here over the Nile River and over Pharaoh's royal house. God is the one in control of this this story. Looks like Pharaoh and Egypt are running the show. God's truly running it. Number three, express faith by waiting for his perfect timing. We express faith by waiting for his perfect timing. So here, here are the key truths here. One, God's in control. Two, God uses his control for my good. And then number three, God brings about the good in my life at the right time. Those are, those are three core beliefs that we need to have for our, for our youth as you're coming up and, and aging out from being underneath your parents and you're starting to experience trials and difficulties on your own now. You've got to remember these three key truths that God is in control, that he's using his control for your good and he will bring about the good at the right time. He'll bring about the good in the right time. Number one, in the midst of chaos, we can trust God by waiting patiently for his actions. In the midst of chaos, we can trust God by waiting patiently for his actions. Notice what's happening here. At the worst part of the captivity, at the worst part of the captivity, God is most at work for his people. Let me say that again. At the worst part of the captivity, God is most at work for his people, right? He's been preserving them. For the 400 years, he's been taking care of them. So it's not that he hasn't been at work. He's been at work. For 400 years, he's been caring for them, preserving them, making sure they have their own place in Goshen to live so they don't get mixed up and, and blended in with the Egyptians so much that they lose their cultural identity. He's been preserving them in the midst of their slavery, in the midst of the abortion commands. He's been preserving them. He's always been at work. He's always been moving. But at the very worst part of this captivity where we go from slavery to asking the midwives to kill babies to now, now if you walk outside with your child, right? Like, like you and the midwife have this deal where like, I'm not gonna kill your baby. Thank you, midwife. Like, thank you for being that type of midwife, right? But now there's this, this, this allowance, this command even, where if I take my kid to the grocery store and an Egyptian sees him and knows that he's young enough to fall under this command, he or she could just walk up, grab him, and throw him in the river and drown him, and nobody's going to stop him. In fact, they're going to praise him for it. Like, think about how Jacobed gets to have Moses, right? She doesn't have to try to hide him or dress him up like a girl so that people don't try to take him from her. No, she can proudly proclaim, I got a boy right here. I got a boy who is under the age of two. Everybody be like, uh, don't say that too loud. Like people can take him and throw him in the Nile River. You can't touch my baby because he's, he's part of the, the princess's household now, right? Like all this fear is removed from her. At the worst part of captivity, God is, at, is most at work for his people. He moves from just preserving them. He's now actively saving them. He's raising up the deliverer. But here's the thing. Nobody really knows that. 
This is, this is part of where we have to understand and believe that God is working even when we don't know it. Maybe Amram and Jacobed, because the Bible talks in several places about how they knew he was a beautiful child or a fine child or a special child. But I mean, honestly, which parent doesn't think that about their kid, right? So maybe there's nothing really unique going on there. They think, hey, my baby boy's special. So does everybody, right? So maybe they knew that God was raising up a deliverer with Moses, but maybe not. Certainly people outside of their family had no idea that Moses was born, that Moses was being cared for, preserved, and was going to end up in Pharaoh's household. This is when God is most at work, though, in this story. He's raising up the deliverer. He's raising up salvation. And, and for the most part, the Israelites have no idea. And that's probably true for your life, too. You're in the midst of trials and difficulties and challenges, and you have no idea that God is working and moving in your midst. But here's the thing. We can trust that he is. Even when we can't see it, we can trust that he is. And if we'll trust that he is, it'll enable us to be obedient to him and to wait for him. This whole story is meant to help Moses achieve his destiny. He's going to become exactly what Israel needs in a deliverer. Look what Acts chapter 7 says. Stephen is preaching his final sermon before he's going to be stoned. Acts chapter 7, verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, what promise? The promise in Genesis 15 that God was going to bring Israel out of Egypt. He was going to rescue them, bring them to the promised land. As the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. Man, God is working and moving and using Moses to be the deliverer of his people. He's carrying this out. He's working in in supernatural ways. But here's here's the thing. God always uses natural means in supernatural ways to carry out his plans. Could God have just like killed all the Egyptians and the Israelites just walked out without a deliverer? Yeah, he could have done that. He could have just killed Pharaoh, killed everybody, and let them walk right out. But God decides to use natural means meaning he raises up a political leader. He raises up a deliverer who's trained and equipped to do it. And he gets his training and equipment for free because he's part of Pharaoh's household. He knows all the inner workings of Pharaoh and the Egyptians because he grows up there and he leads Israel out of there as a result of it. God works in this way in his own perfect timing. Number two, in the midst of chaos, we can trust God by avoiding resentment during his delays. It's so tempting and so easy to grumble and complain when we find ourselves in the midst of challenges. We can't readily see God working until we begin to grumble and complain and and God forbid we grow resentful towards him. For our youth, man, this this may become one of your greatest challenges at some point in your life where you are tempted to resent God because he's not working according to your timetable. He's not doing it as fast as you'd like for him to do it. 
And so you grow resentful towards them. Look what Hebrews chapter um, 6, verse 9 says. This is in the context of people falling away from the faith. People falling away from the Look what verse 9 says. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, right? Keep believing in God till the end. Keep trusting in his goodness, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. How do we inherit the promises? By, by expressing faith, right? We, we, we trust in his rule, we trust in his providential care, and we're patient as we wait for those things. We're patient as we wait for God to show that he is ruling for our good. We have, to, we have to avoid trying to be logical about trials because a lot of times we get restless uh, and resentful when we can't figure out what's happening and why it's happening, right? Like, why is this happening? This is the ultimate uh, opportunity for resentment here with the children of Israel. Why would God bring us down here and allow us to be slaves? Why would he allow our baby boys to be taken from us? This is where they had to remember that everything is right. God promised them in Genesis 15 this was gonna happen. Everything's planned and everything will be well. He was going to deliver them. For 400 years, they have to endure this. Talk about patience, right? We say 400 years so quickly, but think about how long 400 years is. Our nation, the United States of America, is less than 250 years old. Think about being in this predicament that's described here, and we're, not, we're, we're just over halfway through it if we're the, if we're the United States. So back in 1776, when we declared our independence, up until now, we're just over halfway. We've been slaves the entire time. And now our baby boys are being taken from us. Imagine that. Imagine that we're only halfway, just over halfway through it. 400 years is a long time for them to be patiently waiting for God's deliverance. The Amorites have 400 years to become really, really sinful because God says their sin's not reached a point of where I'm going to judge it yet. But God's about to reverse all of that, right? The Amorites who've been living in luxury and sinning gloriously, I mean, they're about to get judged and punished for it. Israel, who's been slaves, they're about to be rescued out of that. All of, everything's about to change. God's rule is about to become evident. Think about how his delays are always for purposes of salvation, God's always delaying intentionally. That's what 2 Peter tells us in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's delaying for salvific purposes. Here, here's the really cool thing, and we're, we're closing with this. Exodus isn't just for Israel. Through God's deliverance, Egyptians end up being saved as well. Look at this. We know that when Israel leaves Egypt, there's people that go with them that aren't Israelites. Most likely some of those are Egyptian, right? They're saved in the immediate. God delivers Israel, but as he promised Abraham, I'm gonna make you a blessing to all nations. He blesses Egypt through the Exodus. But what's really cool, Isaiah chapter 19, verses 21 and 25 talks about the Egyptians 
becoming his people as well. That's a crazy thought. You're going to save the Egyptians, the people who put your people into slavery, the people who killed baby boys. You're going to, you're going to save the Egyptians? That's exactly what happens at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You read Acts chapter 2, and the Egyptians are grouped with a people that are hearing the gospel in their language, right? Remember, the apostles start speaking in tongues, and the people are hearing the gospel in their language. And Acts chapter 2 very clearly tells us there are Egyptians that are hearing the gospel, and they respond to the gospel. This isn't just their story. This is our story, right? We look back to the Exodus and say, that's my people, right? God saved his people. I'm his people. That's my people, And so we can trust in God's goodness because he was faithful to those people. He's faithful to us today. He keeps his promises to Israel. He keeps his promises to all nations as he promised Abraham he would do. Our application for today. Do you find yourself more prone to resent him or rest in him when the chaos of life hits? Do you find yourself more prone to resent him or rest in him when the chaos of life hits. Jacobet and Amram are a great example of what it looks like to rest in him. They live their life faithfully. They have a baby boy. They preserve him as long as they can. They entrust him to God, and God gives him right back. In his sovereign, providential care, he's working good for them. He's doing the same for you. When chaos hits, remember, God is in control. God is in control for your good, And God's good will come at the right time. These three things ring true all through Exodus chapter 1, all 400 years. And then into Exodus chapter 2, he's in control. He's in control for the good of his people. And he begins to bring that good to light at the right time. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you and we praise you for your goodness. We know you don't have to be good towards us. You're sovereign, you rule, you reign, you have the power. You get to determine whatever plans and purposes you want. God, we praise you and thank you today that you have chosen to extend your sovereignty to us. You have chosen to provide for us as your people. You have chosen to use your sovereignty to work good for your children. We praise you and we thank you for that. God, remind us when our circumstances seem to be more in control than you. When we're hit with trials and challenges and difficulties, when we're experiencing things that we don't want to experience, God, help us to remember the Israelites in Egypt and how you were working for their good, even when they couldn't see it. Help us to bring comfort and hope and encouragement to us that you are working for our good even when we can't see it. Help us to remember that you're in control. Help us to remember that you have chosen to use your control for our good. And Lord, help us to be patient as we wait for that good to show up. We know you're at work behind the scenes, but oftentimes we don't get to see it right away. And Lord, we are tempted to resent you at times because we're frustrated, wondering if your good is really going to be accomplished. God, help us to be patient Help us to express faith as we wait patiently. Help us to trust you. Help us as trials hit for our faith to grow, not to to decrease. 
Help it to grow as the Israelites grew in the midst of their trial. Help us to remember these important truths as we leave today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.